All right, well, it's uh, great to be back with you this evening, and I get to talk about logic, the principles of right reasoning, and why that is really important, why it should be important to every Christian. And so to begin, I want you to think to yourself how you would respond to the following claims. Somebody comes and says to you, we know evolution is a fact because bacteria have evolved resistance to antibiotics. Or if somebody says, uh, well, you're just a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. If you were raised by Muslims, you'd probably be a Muslim. Hmm, how would, how would we answer that? Or somebody says, well, the Bible teaches that God causes lightning and rain. There's the verses. But we now understand that these things are due to natural forces, right? We know when rain happens, it's when it, the temperature drops below dew point and so on. And we know lightning, it's, you know, it's electricity and... All of these are examples of fallacies. Every one of those contains an error in reasoning. And so if, if we know something about logic, we can spot these fallacies, we can not be fooled by them, and we can help others who have been fooled by these errors in reasoning. No one rejects Christianity for logical reasons. It's the foundation for, our, for logical thought. We'll come back to that. But whenever somebody argues against the Christian worldview, there's, it's always due to an error in reasoning, always. And so it's helpful to know something about logic. Logic is, according to the dictionary, a proper or reasonable way of thinking about or understanding something. It's right thinking. A science that deals with the principles and, and criteria of validity of inference and demonstration. The science of the formal principles of reasoning. It's how to use your brain rightly. That's what logic is all about. And that's something that we all should do. God's given us this wonderful, amazing brain, this computer that's made out of meat. That's pretty amazing. And, uh, and we, we, we owe it to him to use it and to use it properly. So logic is to think rationally. To think rationally, to think logically is to think in a way that is consistent with God's thoughts. Wait, well, wait a minute. You just said logic is the right way of thinking. Yes. But now you're saying it's to think like God. Yes. Because God always thinks rightly. Right? God always thinks correctly, thus to think correctly is to think God's thoughts after him. God's mind isn't exactly like our mind. We're made in God's image. That's a tremendous blessing. But God's mind determines what's true. It's the source of all truth. Our minds discover what's true. It's kind of a different way of thinking about it, but it's biblical. The, be the fear of the Lord's the beginning of knowledge because in, in Christ are deposited all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, according to Colossians 2.3. And so to think properly, we need to think in a way that's consistent with God's character. To be rational is to have good, self-consistent reasons for all our beliefs. So if you believe something, if, if, it's ra if it's rational belief, if it's a rational belief, then you should have a good reason for it. Now, the purpose of education, or at least the original purpose of education, was to train people to, to become rational, to, to, uh, to learn to have good reasons for our beliefs, and to abandon beliefs that don't have good reasons behind them. Children are not very good thinkers. And so the point is, as you grow up, you're supposed to become a good thinker. You're supposed to learn to use your brain properly. And that's supposed to be the purpose of education. Now, in, in our world today, in, in most schools, sadly, that's not the purpose of education. It's more about teaching children what to think rather than how to think. And that's a shame because that's not really biblical. And there are exceptions, of course, but... There are two enemies of rationality that we must avoid at all costs, two intellectual sins that are to be avoided. The first is arbitrariness, and the second is inconsistency. Arbitrariness and inconsistency. 
If you're arbitrary or inconsistent, you're not being rational when it comes to your beliefs, okay? So arbitrary means not based on reason or evidence. So if you don't have a particular reason for why you believe something, it's arbitrary. And that's not good because to have arbitrary beliefs is by definition irrational. Because remember, rational, is, rational means based on facts or reason. That's the dictionary definition. So if you say, well, I don't have a reason, then you're saying, well, I'm not, I'm not being rational, okay? And a, a rational person has good reasons for his or her beliefs by definition. That's, that's what it means. Beliefs with no good reasons behind them are necessarily irrational, and as I pointed out, children tend to be irrational. Children think that there's a monster in the closet. Now, they don't have a good reason for believing that. They just believe it. And they act on that belief by pulling the sheets over their head, and apparently that protects them because they're still alive the next morning. This is not rational thinking. We expect that behavior from little children. Adults shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, if, if, if you're a mentally healthy adult, that's, you shouldn't still be thinking that there's monsters in the closet or under the bed or what have you. We're supposed to become rational, which means we ought to have good reasons for our beliefs. Now, this, this arbitrariness and, and, and not being arbitrary applies to beliefs. When you decided what shirt you were going to wear today and you said, I, you know, I think I'll pick blue today and you don't have a really good reason for that, that's arbitrary, but that's okay because that's not a belief. That's a preference. You can, you can have preferences and you don't have to have any particularly good reasons for them as long as they're not dangerous. But shirt color, that's, that's not a problem. But when it comes to what you hold to be true, you better have a good reason for it. Because if you don't, it's probably not true. And when you go around believing things that are not true, that tends to have negative consequences, doesn't it? So why avoid arbitrariness in our thinking? If a belief is arbitrary, then there's literally no good reason to believe it. That's what, it, that's what the word means. Uh, the point of a rational argument is to show that there are good reasons to believe in its conclusion. And so to be arbitrary is by definition to be irrational. And we do have a moral ob obligation to be rational. I'm gonna come back to that as well. When somebody says, well, I think this, I think that there, there's life in outer space, there's a natural question we want to ask, why? Why do you believe that? Because a lot of times they're trying to persuade us. You know, I think this, and you should think that too. Why? What is your reason for believing that, and is it a good reason? If it's a good reason, then, hey, I might believe that too. But if you say, well, I don't really have a reason, well, then I guess I don't have a reason to believe what you're saying, do I? That's the whole point of an argument is to show that you have good reasons for your beliefs, and we should have good reasons for our beliefs. The more important your belief, the more important it is you have good reasons for it. And then our beliefs need to be self-consistent. We need to avoid inconsistency. To be inconsistent is to have incompatible elements, having parts that disagree with each other. And by the law of non-contradiction, you can't have that. If you have A and not A at the same time and in the same sense, that, that, that's, that's false. You can't have both of those together. Inconsistent beliefs are necessarily false due to the law of non-contradiction. A and not A is always false. If I said my car's in the parking lot and it's not the case that my car's in the parking lot, that statement is automatically false because it contradicts itself. And so if you have beliefs that are contradictory, they're false, and it's best not to have false beliefs. I probably don't need to go into a lot of detail about why it's bad to have false beliefs, right? If you think, well, gravity doesn't apply to me, that's a false belief. And if you act on that, that's not going to work out well for you. So, the, and by the way, the law of non-contradiction, which indicates you can't have A and not A at the same time in the same sense, that's rooted in the nature of God. God is self-consistent. His thinking is self-consistent, and therefore ours should be too, if we're going to be truthful in our thinking. 
So why avoid inconsistency in our thinking? When you have two inconsistent beliefs, at least one of them is necessarily false. That has to be the case. Because they're, that's, the, that's what it means to be inconsistent. They can't both be true at the same time. They're contrary. They cannot both be true at the same time. Inconsistent thinking is contrary to the nature of God, and therefore it's explicitly unbiblical. Let me show you some of the verses here. Uh, Paul says, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. We're not contradicting ourselves. We're not saying yes and no at the same time in the same sense, right? Because that would be not only irrational, it would be immoral because it's contrary to God's nature. Elijah came to, uh, to all, near all the peoples and said, uh, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him, right? They wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to say God's the Almighty and Baal's the Almighty. That doesn't make sense. You can't have two almighty beings. That doesn't make any sense. The Bible repudiates hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a type of inconsistency. It's an inconsistency when your words say one thing, but your actions something else, and your actions reveal what's in your heart, right? So Jesus said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. You see the inconsistency there? Jesus did not have nice things to say about hypocrites. And that is a dreadful type of inconsistency. We're not to be that way because God isn't. So that's all by way of introduction. That gives you a little taste of what logic is. And I'm going to make the argument that every Christian should strive to be rational for three reasons. Three reasons why we need to become good thinkers. And, that's a, and it's a lifelong process, but you've got to start somewhere. Uh, first reason, we have a moral obligation to be rational. It's not optional for a Christian. It is a sin to be irrational. I'll show you the verses in a little bit. We've covered some of them already. Rationality has many practical benefits. You, what could be more practical than learning to use your mind properly? Right? I mean, we, we use our brain when we do just about anything. So wouldn't, it, wouldn't that event, whatever it is, turn out better if we're using our brain better? Right? Again, God gave us this amazing mind. Uh, I mean, we have the physical brain, and our mind is more than that. We have, we have an immaterial spirit as well that interfaces with our brain in a way that we don't fully understand. But uh, what a shame not to use that properly. Use it properly, you're going to have a better outcome generally. And then finally, rationality is essential in apologetics. It's uh, next, next to the Bible itself, I think rationality is probably, the, I think it's the next most important tool in defending the Christian faith. And so when you run into people who say you shouldn't be a Christian because of X, Y, and Z, if, it's, if you know something about logic, you're going to be able to spot the flaws in their reasoning and hopefully help them out of that fallacious and self-destructive type of reasoning, or false reasoning, really. So let's zoom in on the first here. We have a moral obligation to be rational. It's not optional for the Christian because God is rational. He has good reasons for what he does. He, his reasons are not self-contradictory. They're self-consistent. And we are made in God's image. We're supposed to reflect God's character, and we're commanded to emulate God's character. Uh, in, in Isaiah 118, the Lord says, come now, let us reason together. We're supposed to reason. People have these misconceptions about faith. Well, faith is jumping on something that you can't prove. That's not really the definition of faith, at least not biblically. Uh, faith, our faith in God is rational. It makes sense. We're supposed to use our brain, but we're supposed to build on what God has revealed to us and use our brain properly. In Jeremiah 4.22, God condemns those who are not using their brain properly, those who are Fools, according to Scripture. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They're stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. 
And it's interesting how God associates foolishness, stupidity, and wickedness. Because we tend to think about, well, you know, foolishness and stupidity, that's, you know, just, that's mistakes. But is it wicked? Well, it's wicked, yeah. We're supposed to use our brain properly. Isaiah 55, 7, let the, the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and, and let him return to the Lord. And he will have uh, compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So here God is saying, that those of you that are acting wickedly, it's because you're not thinking like me and you're not behaving like me. And so the solution is you need to turn away from your thoughts, you need to turn away from your actions and match your thinking and your actions to my ways and my, and my thinking. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That's the problem. Verse 8, is, God actually gives the solution first and then states the problem. The problem is we're not thinking like God, we're not behaving like God, we're not using our brain properly. And as a result, our actions are not pleasing to him. And the solution is given in verse 7, we're supposed to turn away from our arbitrary and sinful uh, thinking and actions and line up with God. And then lest anyone think, well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that I'm not thinking like you, God, but maybe you should change and, and, cha- and agree with me. Then he gives us verse 9. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's making it very clear. His mind is the superior one and infinitely superior. When you consider how the heavens are higher than the earth, as an astronomer, I can assure you that is a very large difference. It is, it is enormous. And you might think, well, how, how then can we think like God if, if his thoughts are like the heavens compared to the earth? Well, God doesn't expect us to think exactly like him. We can't. We're finite. But we can think in a way that's consistent with his character. You might think of a, a beam of light coming down from a distant quasar, you know, putting a spotlight right here on the, on the ground. Now, I can't possibly reach the source of that light. It's light years away, right? But I can stand in the light, and then I can see. So that's what God wants of us. It's in God's light we see light, the scriptures say. So the Bible tells us, Do not be as the horse or mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include a bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. See, you can get a horse to go wherever you want it to go. You put this bit in its mouth, you turn it that way, it'll go that way. You turn it this way, it'll go that way. So don't be like that. Don't just go whatever way people push you. Uh, Don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Think. Use your brain. So we're supposed to be rational. We're not supposed to be like animals that that don't have much in the way of of rationality. They They can be trained to go this way or that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a tough verse. We, we like to focus on the first part. Yeah, we're destroying speculations. So those arguments against God, hey, we're refuting those. The last part of that verse is hard. We're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Is every thought that you have in your head obedient to Christ? Or do you have some runaway thoughts? Hmm. That's tough. That's tough. Since we're commanded to pattern our thoughts after God, that's what the Bible says. To fail to be rational is sin. To fail to use your brain properly is sinful. We do have a moral obligation to think in a way that is consistent with God's character and to behave in a way that's consistent with with God's commands. So we do have a moral obligation to be rational. Rationality has many practical benefits. The Bible lists a lot of those, but if we just think through it, of of course, using your brain well is going to, you're going to be better off, right, generally. Thinking rationally makes us more likely to believe things that are true. That's the whole point of it, right? 
learning to think in a way that's consistent with the mind of God because God's mind determines truth, right? He's, whatever he declares, that's the way the universe becomes. He says, let there be light, there's light, right? God's mind determines reality. Our minds discover reality and not always properly and that's, that's where we get tripped up. But if you learn to think rationally, you're gonna have more beliefs that are true and fewer false beliefs. That's the goal because false beliefs lead to, to bad actions. They do. Thinking rationally reduces our susceptibility to uh, sophisms and other errors. There are tricks that people will use to manipulate you into doing what they want you to do. And by the way, we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years. I'm just saying. Okay? We've seen a lot of that. I won't go into detail. But we, um, hey, if you're thinking rationally, you can, spot th- you can spot those things. Ah, I see what you're trying to do there. You're trying to manipulate me to do that. But you haven't made a rational argument. Right? Now, if, if, you, if you can make a rational argument that I should do this thing, and it's a good argument, hey, I'll consider it, right? But if, you, if you're just trying to trick me, I'm going to see through that if I'm trained in logic. Thinking rationally helps us in matters of science to judge between competing models. Uh, as, as a scientist myself, I, I, I think through, okay, this person says this is the explanation for this event that we see out in space. This person says, no, it's this. Logic helps me to decide between those two, which is the better, or maybe, they're, maybe neither one of them is satisfying. Or maybe we can't decide because we don't have enough information. It also helps us to distinguish between genuine science and pseudoscience. Not all scientific claims are genuinely scientific in the sense that they've followed the scientific method, they've done an experiment, they've gotten a result, they've properly interpreted the data. There are people out there who make all kinds of claims. I mean, evolution itself is a pseudoscientific claim. It pretends to be scientific, but it really isn't. It's not like you can demonstrate particles to people evolution in a laboratory. It's not testable or repeatable. There are creationists who, who make the same kind of mistakes, unfortunately, and I've, I've written about some of those mistakes in, in my various articles. But yeah, it, thinking rationally will help you distinguish. Wait, is that, is that really scientific, something that maybe I should consider, or is it just using scientific sounding language, but there's been no actual experiment, there's, there's no data in support of that, and so on. Thinking rationally will bring increased knowledge, wisdom, happiness, and blessings. The Bible does teach that. It's interesting, there in Proverbs, uh, of course Proverbs is all about you know, gaining knowledge and gaining wisdom, genuine wisdom that comes from God, genuine knowledge, and it's a blessing to you. The more that you're able to use your brain properly, the more you're able to perceive the world the way it is, God and how, and how he is, and that's always a blessing. Thinking rationally will greatly aid our evangelism and our call to make disciples of all nations. If you're thinking rightly, you're, when you interact with people, you're going to be, you're going to be um, uh, defending the faith in a way that makes sense, it's logical, because you've thought through it, and, it's, and you understand the reasons for it and so on, and you can share those reasons with others. And that's very effective in evangelism and discipleship. And then thinking rationally is crucial to a proper understanding of Scripture. It helps us avoid heresy. A lot of the heresies that have popped up over the centuries, and we, we still have heresies popping up today, a lot of those are due to an error in reasoning, a mistake in reasoning. Because they'll read the Bible, but they draw an incorrect conclusion because they're not thinking properly. I thought I'd give you one quick example of this. And it's uh, the passage that some people draw incorrect conclusions from. It, the passage is fine. It's part of Scripture. It's John 5, 28 through 29. Jesus is speaking. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Okay, so there he's referring to the, 
the final call there, the, the last day where, where he's going to resurrect everyone and some people who resurrect to life. They get to spend eternity in the presence and mercy of, of God and the grace of God. Others will experience a resurrection of judgment where they will have to endure the penalty for their sin because they've rejected Christ's offers of mercy and salvation. But what's interesting about this is you notice it correlates those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And a lot of people look at that and they say, well, see, that's, that's teaching works salvation because those who did good, they got to go to heaven. Those who did bad, they ended up in hell. They were resurrected to judgment. And that is an error in reasoning. It has a Latin name. It's called a cum hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. The English name would be the fallacy of false cause. Fallacy of false cause. This is where you assume that because A and B go together, that A is the cause of B. When in reality, it could be the reverse or they could be caused by, both could be caused by C, for example. And so the person who commits this fallacy notices that good deeds correspond with eternal life, which they do, and that evil deeds correspond with eternal condemnation, which they do. But does that mean that good deeds caused the salvation? No. It's the salvation that caused the good deeds. And if you read on in Scripture, you'll find that. Those who have been saved want to serve God and obey him out of gratitude for salvation, not in an attempt to be saved. You can't do that. We all fall short in that, in that category. We've all sinned against God and deserve his wrath and condemnation. But those who are saved want to serve God out of gratitude, okay? So salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. The Bible's very clear about that. And one of the important principles of hermeneutics is you interpret the less clear in light of the, the more clear. And so it's not, it's not good deeds that cause salvation. It's salvation that causes good deeds. So there is a correlation between those who do good, those who are practicing good because they love God, because God saved them. And they go to heaven, not because of the deeds, but because of salvation. So that's an example of where right reasoning can save you from a heresy. But if you didn't know that, if you're thinking, if you, that's a common fallacy that people commit. So rationality does have many practical benefits. And then I, as an apologist, really like to focus on this one. Uh, by, the, by the grace of God, I've, I've been able to do as a vocation apologetics full-time. And I'm very grateful for that. And rationality is just so important in apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. There are those who want to say, you shouldn't be a Christian for X, Y, and Z. And what I try to do is say, no, uh, you're, you're really not thinking right. Let me help you through this, and, and let's see if we can be a little more rational here, okay? I always try to do it in, in graciousness, but, but there is always an error in reasoning when someone says you shouldn't believe the Bible. That's always fallacious. There are two, there are two sort of subcategories of this. Uh, first of all, arguments against the Bible are always inherently fallacious, and so if you know about correct reasoning, and if you know about some of the more common fallacies, errors in reasoning, you can spot these arguments against the Bible and, and see why they don't work. You can say, well, that fails because of this. Okay, so that's very helpful. And then secondly, and this is something that not a lot of people uh, consider, is that rationality actually presupposes the Christian worldview. In order, for, in order for rationality to be possible, the Christian worldview would have to be true. The Bible would have to be true in what it says. That's something that not a lot of people have thought about. I'm going to come back to that. But let's focus in on the first one. Arguments against the Bible are always inherently fallacious. And so um, let's, let's go back to some of those ones that we you know, brought up at the beginning, and I'll throw in some others as well. Uh, for example, if somebody says, well, why are you creationists against science? Okay, that's a fallacy. 
And this, I always get a chuckle out of that because, yeah, yeah, I, I hate science. That's why I went through and got a PhD in astrophysics. Um, I love science. Come on. This, so it's a fallacy of a complex question. That's where you ask a question in a biased way, okay, that, that presupposes something that you're wanting to tr try and establish. This, this, this presupposes that we are against science, which isn't the case. And so it should be, it's called complex because it should be divided into two. First of all, are you against science? And then if so, why? But since the answer to the first is, well, we're not, then the second is meaningless, right? So that's, that's a logical fallacy. Either you believe the Bible or you accept the scientific method. Uh, I believe the Bible and I accept the scientific method. In fact, I accept the scientific method because it's biblical. God upholds his universe in a consistent way, which is why we can test things. That's, science is predicated on that. This is a bifurcation fallacy. A bifurcation fallacy also called the either-or fallacy, either this or that. Basically, the bifurcation fallacy is when someone gives you a multiple-choice test, there's two options and neither of them is right. And keep in mind that life is not a multiple-choice test. You, it's, it's a write-in ballot. You can, you can write in the correct answer. You can say, I reject those two options. Let me give you the true answer. I believe in the Bible, and because of that, we can do things like science. Because God is consistent in the way he upholds us as creation. There's one I mentioned at the beginning, right? The Bible teaches that God causes lightning and rain. But we now understand that these are due to natural forces. That is a bifurcation fallacy. Either God causes lightning and rain, or it has to do with temperature and dew point and electricity. Both of those are true. Natural forces are not an alternative to God's power. They're an example of God's power. And the fact that we can write down equations that describe the way God upholds his creation shows that it's God's mind that's upholding the universe. Natural forces are simply the name we give to the normal way that God upholds his creation. That's what natural is, the normal way God acts. Supernatural is when God acts in an unusual way. But you need to understand supernatural actions are no more divine than natural actions because God upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. The reason the electron orbits that proton in, the, in every atom is ultimately because God decrees that. We say, well, it's due to electromagnetic forces. That's the name we give to the way that God causes that to happen. But it's ultimately because God has determined it to be that way. And because he's very logical, we can, we can discover how many of these things work. And it's, it's wonderful, but because, it's because it's controlled by the mind of God. Somebody says, we know evolution is fact because bacteria have evolved resistance to antibiotics. That is the fallacy of equivocation. That's where you switch the meaning of a word in the middle of an argument. Evolution has multiple meanings. The word evolution has multiple meanings. Sometimes it just means change. Now, I don't dispute that things change. There's no doubt about that. The world was once a paradise. Today it's not. Things have changed, right? But that doesn't mean I have to believe in a particular idea of how things change, right? Which is what the neo-Darwinian idea is. It's a speculation that, that all life is descended from a common ancestor, and I, and I reject that. But I do, I do believe animals change. There's no doubts there, right? So when someone says, I know evolution is true, by which they mean Darwinian evolution, because we see changes within animals, which is sort of a generic type of evolution, one does not prove the other. That's an equivocation fallacy. It's a very common one that many evolutionists make. Somebody says, creationists do not believe that animals change at all. That would be a straw man fallacy. These are very common, very, very common. You'll see a lot of these on the Internet. Uh, this is where you misrepresent your opponent's position and then refute that silly, absurd position, but that's not what creationists actually teach. We do believe that animals change. They just don't change beyond their kind, right? 
But, there, but God has built in the ability to, uh, for animals to reproduce animals that are not exactly like them. There's variation within a kind. So a straw man argument where you misrepresent your opponent, put words in their mouth. Uh, you know, here's what they believe, but that's not really what they believe. And so you might have a more difficult time refuting what it is that creationists actually teach. It's easier to just refute a straw man. Somebody says, you're just a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. A lot of people get stuck on that one. And the interesting thing about that is there's some truth to that. I mean, it, it is true that you're, you're more likely to end up a Christian if you were brought up in a Christian home. There's no doubt about that. That's biblical. Jesus said the pupil becomes like his teacher in Luke uh, 640, right? So there, the, the interesting thing about that, it's true, but it's irrelevant. This is a, called a circumstantial ad hominem fallacy. Ad hominem means to the man. And this is where you point out that a person's circumstances have motivated him to make the argument or perhaps to accept the conclusion, but it has nothing to do with the truth of the position, right? Somebody says, well, you're a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I don't have great reasons to continue to be a Christian, like the fact that it makes rationality possible, for example. To, to illustrate the absurdity of this, it would be like me saying, well, you just believe in the multiplication table because you were taught it in school. Now, most of us were taught the multiplication table in school, but that doesn't mean I don't have good reasons to continue to believe in the multiplication table. It's pretty useful, right? I mean, if I was raised by wolves, I probably wouldn't have figured it out. I'm, I'm grateful that I was taught the multiplication table in school. You see my point, and I'm very grateful that I, was, I happen to have been blessed by being brought up in a Christian home. But that's irrelevant to the truth of Christianity, you see. Utterly irrelevant. So people think they're making a point here, but they're not. Uh, some people say, well, creationists are not real scientists. That's called the no true Scotsman fallacy. That's where you redefine a term, usually by putting something like real or true in front of it. And it comes from the, the, um, the, the, the original example was, well, no, no Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. And somebody says, well, no, that's not so. Angus is a Scotsman, and he puts sugar in his porridge. And the response is, oh, well, no true Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. But you see, that's a fallacy because it's contrary to the dictionary definition. There's nothing in the dictionary definition of a Scotsman that says you, that whether or not they have sugar in their porridge or not. It just has to be where you're from, right? It has nothing to do with what you eat. And so that is an example of a no true Scotsman fallacy. So and there, there are lots of things like that. See, if you know a little bit about logic, then you can spot those fallacies. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I found this article on the internet, it's actually an older article, but I, I just came across it a few weeks ago, uh, taking on creationism and uh, which, which arguments and evidence counter pseudoscience. So he's arguing against biblical creation. He's calling it pseudoscience. He's, he, he refers to it as creationism, and that's usually, you know, you put ism on something, well, it's just a belief, right? And so you see how he's already subtly biased the reader. He's trying to bias the reader, and he, he, he just, he calls it pseudoscience. He hasn't proved it's pseudoscience. He's simply calling it that. That's the fallacy of the question-begging epithet. Question-begging epithet is where you use biased language to try and persuade someone instead of logical reasons. He hasn't presented any evidence for, for that, that creation is not science. He's just stated that, right? Uh, let me read just some of the passages of, of this. He starts, as the noted geneticist and evolutionary biologist uh, Dobzhansky famously commented, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Now, those of you that are, that are logical are thinking, so what? Because this is, would be, I think, an example of the faulty appeal to authority. 
Yeah, there are brilliant people that believe in evolution, but you know what? There are brilliant people that believe in creation, so that cancels that right out. Nor will it do to say, well, the majority believe in such because the majority don't determine what's true. God determines what's true, right? And in fact, every major scientific discovery went against what the majority of experts thought. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a discovery. It would have been a confirmation. So, yeah. He says, however, creationism in its many forms, creationism in its many forms insists that everything in nature was created by a deity. Well, we'll give him a pass on that. I mean, it's not like everything. I mean, God, God upholds what he made, but, but he made everything uh, originally. That's true. Uh, from the movement of the uh, chloride atoms through a channel in response to the binding of ligand to the bizarre life forms that were deposited in the Burgess Shale more than 500 million years ago. That's called begging the question. He's simply assumed that that's 500 million years old. He hasn't proved that, right? To any mainstream biologist, creationism sounds ludicrous, and scientists have repeatedly fought attempts to introduce the teaching of creationism generally and intelligent design particularly in school curricula. To any mainstream biologist, that sounds like a no-true-Scotsman fallacy. I know a lot of biologists that are very mainstream in the sense that they, under, you know, they understand DNA and genetics and so on, but they believe in creation. Creationism sounds ludicrous. That's just a question-begging epithet. It's just, it's just to get you emotionally riled. That's all it's for. And scientists have repeatedly fought attempts. Uh, excuse me, I know a lot of scientists who are creationists. But you see, it makes it sound like you know, it's, it's anti-science. All the scientists are evolutionists. Not all of them, no. But again, it's, it's that emotional language, the question-begging epithet. And then, of course, you know, trying to get it into schools, I, and maybe some are doing that, but I don't know anyone that's trying for that, because most of us think that, we, actually, we'd like to get it into the churches. <laughs> we want churches to teach biblical creation. But in any case, uh, that's not our goal, really, in, in terms of the, the schools. I, I wish Christian schools would teach it, certainly. But uh, it, again, it's, you know, think of the children. Think of the children that are being damaged by creation. Again, it's, it's designed to appeal to your emotion, but there's, there, there's been no logical argument so far. However, like many scientists and commentators, Jerry Coyne, professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Chicago, fears that the social impact of these movements could extend far beyond the purely scientific debate. Oh, there's going to be bad social... I mean, if we let this creation thing continue, there's going to be bad social consequences. That's the fallacy of the appeal to consequences, or the slippery slope fallacy. Therefore, scientists need to... Scientists or evolutionists? Oh. Because creation scientists, we're not countering the claims of creation, right? But again, it's, it, it's, he's just assuming that. It's a question being epithet. Scientists need to counter the claims of the proponents of creationism and determine which arguments best support the case for evolutionary theory and more generally support science itself in the public arena, right? Because it's not just create. We need to defend science because creationists are anti-science. Strawman fallacy. Almost every sentence contains a fallacy. It's amazing. I'm kind of impressed, actually, with how many errors he's able to pack into such a short article. Yet scientists face a dilemma. Not me. <laughs> I don't face the The danger is that if scientists engage the proponents of creationism, again, as if all scientists are evolutionists, which they're not. If scientists engage the proponents of creationism in intelligent design and direct debate, they risk giving further credence to anti-evolutionary arguments by inferring that the ideas are worthy of discussion. Well, we don't want to debate them because that might make them look like, you know, they actually have a brain. Conversely, a failure to engage in debate could allow creationists to argue that biologists cannot rather than will not counter their arguments. By the way, just as a matter of experience, this is not why evolutionists don't debate creationists anymore. Because that was very popular in the 70s and 80s. 
And they, they lost, every, the evolutionists lost about every debate because they cannot defend their position rationally. That's why they don't do it anymore. It has nothing to do with giving credibility. Because there are many brilliant creationists who, you know, are, have made major strides in, in science. The Catholic Church, one of the most historically ardent opponents of Darwin's grand theory of evolution, has made its peace with the subject. So what? Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's interesting because from his point of view, he thinks evolution is scientific, so why is he bringing in the Roman Catholic Church? Interesting. It's a faulty appeal to authority. It's irrelevant to the truth. Before he became Pope uh, Benedict, Car uh, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger wrote that, we cannot say creation or evolution insomuch as these two things respond to two different realities. The story of the dust of the earth and the breath of God, which we just heard, does not in fact explain how human persons came to be, but rather what they are. Actually, that's exactly what it says. It's how they, that's how we came to be. Right? That's what the Bible directly says. So the fact that you know, a religious figure who knows nothing about science and really shouldn't be being considered on this topic if he thinks it's a scientific issue, says something that's demonstrably false, that, I mean, how, do, how is that relevant to anything? This is just a faulty appeal to authority. It's not a very good one. According to Conway Morris, another appeal to authority, right? Such teleological arguments, those are arguments for design, right? Something looks designed. Uh, these seeds often fall on fertile ground. He says, many creationists are genuinely astonished at, by the diversity of living organisms, he said. As biologists, we tend to use mechanistic metaphors, He's thinking, you know, the heart's designed to do this, and this design, its purpose is to do that. That's what he's talking about, which implicitly encouraged the idea of a maker. So one can see why the idea of an intelligent designer appeals to someone not versed in evolutionary theory. You get what he's saying here? And you should be insulted by this. He's saying, you know, the reason that you guys think that there's a designer, you know, it's, it's partly on us. We, we use this language, you know, like this designed and purpose. We don't really mean it, though. We're not being literal but you took us literally, so it's partly on us. That's why, you know, those of you that are not trained in evolutionary theory. So, it, it, yeah, that's, again, that's a circumstantial ad hominem. You just believe because of whatever, rather than, uh, actually, we've got really good reasons to believe in creation. And intelligent design is not science, and I think it's bad theology, but I can see why people hold the view. See, we're not as enlightened as this, as this fella, because we, we're not trained in evolutionary biology, you see. That's why we're just so confused, because he's been using language like, you know, the, the, what did he call it? The mechanistic metaphors, you know, the, 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 you know, the heart, the pump of the body that's designed to pump blood and so on. Have you ever, did, did he ever stop and think, why is it we use those kind of metaphors? Why is it we talk like the heart has a purpose and is designed to pump blood? And you ever think about that? Could it be because the heart was designed to pump blood? Yeah. Intelligence design and creationism do not just limit themselves to refuting the theory of evolution. The attack on science, he's equivocating evolution with science. In my view, those are two very different things. Uh, extends to other fields, including geology, astronomy, and even scientific materialism. M materialism is a philosophy, right, that all that exists is material matter and energy. And he's trying to make a logical argument against it, which is impossible because logic is non-material. Right? If all that exists is matter and energy, and yet you think, think, we think we should be logical, logic is not matter and energy. It's rules for correct reasoning. It can't exist in a materialistic universe. So anyway, it, you know, it extends to geology, astronomy, 
when you list different fields of science, but you don't actually make any actual point or give any real evidence, that's called elephant hurling. That's a fallacy. A better strategy might therefore be let the, the scientific evidence speak for itself. That's called a reification fallacy. That's when you give uh, a personal or concrete characteristic to an abstraction, like evidence speaks or the science says. Have you ever heard people say, well, science says? Well, I got news for you. Science doesn't say anything because it's not a person. It's a method, right? Now, people, scientists say things, but not science itself. Evidence doesn't speak for itself. If it does, you better run, right? If that fossil starts talking to you, get out of there. <laughs> you need to see a doctor very quickly. It's hard for anyone to claim that evolution hasn't taken place when they're presented with the evidence. Uh, it's just a bold claim, right? There, there's, it, it begs the question. And it's worth pointing out that many people who believe in God also regard evolution as fact. The two aren't incompatible. Again, that's irrelevant. That's just an appeal to majority or appeal to authority, right? And it's also the naturalistic fallacy, which is the naturalistic fallacy is when you argue that because something happens, it must be right. So, you know, if, if, if you argue, well, abortion's okay because everybody does it or it's been happening on, for thousands of years, that would be the naturalistic fallacy. And he's saying, well, it's okay to believe in God and evolution because, hey, a lot of people do. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it logical, Right? Uh, yeah, you can believe in a God in evolution, but not really the Christian God, because God tells us how he created, right? Unless you think he's lying. However, the countering the rhetoric of the proponents of intelligent design and creationism with scientific evidence is not an easy task. Mm. It's because you don't have any evidence. That's what, that's what makes it hard. Um, evolutionary theory does not quite stir the belief and passion in most people that the grandeur of an almighty does. Now, first of all, I disagree with that. I, a lot of evolutionists that I've known are very passionate about their beliefs. I mean, you, you say, you question evolution, that's, that's their God. And they get very defensive about it. Not all of them, but a number of them. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, he says, you know, evolutionary, it's, that, see, again, this is a circumstantial ad hominem. You just believe that God created because that's a more spectacular belief. That stirs feelings of awe. That's a circumstantial ad hominem fallacy. My motivations for believing something are irrelevant to the truth of that something, right? And it's interesting here, you know, he's contrasting evolutionary theory with God after just previously saying that all oh, those are compatible. Isn't that interesting? Here he, real, he recognizes that, oh, wait, wait a minute, evolution is a replacement for God, which it really is. But he can't, he, he can't think consistently on this issue. Uh, given the difficulties, what evidence can biologists use to counter creationist dogma? Again, the biased language, a question-begging epithet. A as yet, in this article, we have not encountered any evidence for his position. You realize that? It's all biased language. Isn't that fascinating? For example, how can biologists counter the creationist argument that there are still many missing links in the fossil record that make the evolutionary theory unworkable? How do we counter that? Producing some of them would help. Um, <laughs> But this is a bit of a straw man because we're not arguing, all, you know, there's a, there's a few missing links. There's this nice chain of evolution we see in the fossil record, but, you know, step seven is missing. That's not the case. And anyone who knows anything about fossils knows that's not the case. We have step one and we have step a million and five, right? I mean, how many, how many intermediates do we have between single-celled organisms made up of one cell and they reproduce, they split, right? 
and multicellular organisms that contain millions of cells. I mean, how many two- and three-celled organisms do we find in the fossil record? Or four and five? It's, it's not like we find two-celled, three-celled, four-celled, five-celled, and seven-celled. See, you have an, evolutionists haven't found the six-celled creatures. We don't find any of those. Or transitions between invertebrates and vertebrates, which have opposite structures, right? Invertebrates have the hard parts on the outside. Vertebrates have the hard parts on the inside. That's a, that's a, they're opposite in structure. You'd think there ought to be millions of intermediates where it's starting to you turn around. We don't find any? So you see, this is a bit of a straw man argument. We're not just saying, well, there's a few missing links. We're saying, no, when you look at the fossil record, you, it looks like there was creation and a worldwide flood. We find variation within a kind, to be sure, but not, we don't find tr- a, a continual sequence of uh, organisms like, like Darwin predicted. So here's his answer. In any case, the fossil record contains numerous transitional forms that allow the reconstruction of, for example, the development of the modern whale. Now, anyone who's studied that knows that Uh, no, that is indefensible. What they do with these supposed whale transitional forms is they'll find, you know, they'll find a jaw or something and they'll say, see, that's transitional. You don't have, you don't have the feet or flippers. You don't know what it is, right? You just find, you find a, a fraction of a fossil. And that's been, that's been well addressed in creationist literature. There is no continual transition from a, a land organism to whales. They're totally different in structure. And, and anyone who's actually looked at the fossils would know that. Maybe he hasn't. Maybe he believes that. But... It, someone who's familiar with the fossils would not say that. Missing links emerge regularly. Well, they really don't. But there are claims every now and then, and they're debunked a few years later. That happens. And it's quite likely that paleontologists have simply not discovered them all yet. That's the fallacy of the appeal to ignorance. That's when you assume that something is true because you haven't proved the opposite. The appeal to wishful thinking, right? Oh, they're, they're there. We just haven't found them. Okay. So, and we could go on, but that just gives you an example. Yeah, yeah. That just gives you an example of these arguments that, that people use against, and this is just against creationists. There are arguments that you, people use against other aspects of what the Bible teaches. So arguments against the Bible, they're always inherently fallacious, and if you understand logic and can spot logical fallacies, boy, it's very helpful. It's very helpful. But the second point, and this is something that was revolutionary to me when I started thinking this way, rationality presupposes the Christian worldview. In order for us to think properly about anything, the Bible would have to be true. I'm not saying you have to profess a belief in the Bible to think logically. I'm just saying the Bible would have to be true to think logically. People do think logically, therefore the Bible has to be true. Now, I need to back that up, obviously, but I want to point out that laws of logic, the rules that we use to govern all correct reasoning stem from the nature of God as described in the Bible. They do. And so uh, let's think about, for example, the law of non-contradiction. You can't have A and not A at the same time in the same sense, right? That's based, that's rooted in the nature of God because God is self-consistent. God, the Bible says, uh, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Okay, so the law of non-contradiction rooted in the nature of God. All laws of reasoning are rooted in the nature of God. They have to be. He's the standard for correct reasoning because his mind determines truth, our minds discover truth. But if you think about what that law is, like the law of non-contradiction, what is it? Well, you just stated it. You can't have A and not A at the same time in the same sense. Yes, but what is, what is it? Is that something I can touch? Laws of logic are not something you can touch. They're abstract. Abstract means they exist in the mind, right? The law of non-contradiction exists in the mind. It is conceptual. You can't accidentally stub your toe on the law of non-contradiction. You can't accidentally swallow it. Or you can't see it in a telescope. It's non-physical. 
It's conceptual, right? That's what laws are. Laws exist in the mind. Laws of logic are universal, meaning they work everywhere. The law of non-contradiction works here. It works in Ohio. It even works in New Jersey. (laughs) It works on the moon. It works in the Andromeda galaxy. How about that? We assume. Now, no one's been to the Andromeda galaxy. Before 1969, no one had been to the moon. The astronauts who went to the moon were concerned about a lot of things. That was a complicated mission. It involved a lot of complicated instruments with technology that, you know, that was uh, antiquated by today's standards. They had a lot of concerns. But you know what? One thing that astronauts were not concerned about, boy, we hope laws of logic work on the moon. Otherwise, otherwise we might die and not die. Right? <laughs> That'd be a problem, right? They weren't concerned about that. They expected laws of logic to work on the moon. Now think about that. How do they know that? Hmm. Laws of logic are invariant, meaning they don't change with time. Laws of logic work the same on Saturdays as they do on Tuesdays. Isn't that true? You know, it's not like, uh, you know, work policy, you know, on, on, on Fridays you can, you can wear a t-shirt. You know, laws of logic are not like that. You know, on Fridays, the contradictions can be true. It doesn't work that way. Laws of logic are unchanging, and they're exceptionless. It's not like, hey, hey, friends, I actually found an example of a true contradiction. There's a car in the parking lot that's there and not there. None of you would believe that, right? They're exceptionless. So laws of logic are abstract, universal, invariant, exceptionless laws of correct reasoning, and we would expect all those properties because they're rooted in the mind of God. Of course they're going to be abstract. They reflect God's thinking. Thinking is abstract, therefore laws of logic will be abstract. We can have non-material things in the Christian universe. We can have things that, are, that exist that are not made up of atoms. God exists. He's not made up of atoms. He made atoms, Right? So he's not made of them, other than the second person of the Trinity taking on human, a human body, of course. But God in his nature doesn't require that. Their laws of logic are universal. They apply everywhere in the universe because the entire universe is upheld by the mind of God. So of course they're going to work everywhere. Of course they're going to, go, of course they're going to work on the moon because God's presence is, is immediately available on the moon. He's upholding the atoms on the moon the same as he does on the earth. So of course they're going to be universal, Right? They're going to be invariant. They're not going to change with time because God doesn't change with time, right? He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God doesn't change. He's beyond time. Of course, he's not going to change. Now, he can work with, he can come into time and do things. That's not a problem. But he doesn't fundamentally change because he's beyond space and time. He is. So, of course, they're going to be invariant. And they're going to be exceptionless because God is sovereign, All truth exists in the mind of God, and there's nothing that's true that's outside the mind of God because God's mind determines what's true. That's why they're going to be exceptionless. And so I, as a Christian, would say, yeah, of course laws of logic would have to be abstract. They reflect God's thinking. Of course they're going to be universal because God's omnipresent. Of course they're going to be invariant because God doesn't change with time. Of course they're going to be exceptionless because God is sovereign. I would expect all those properties of the laws of logic, but you know a non-Christian can't explain any of those. Right? I mean, a, a materialist can't have abstract things because a materialist says everything that exists is matter and energy. Well, then you can't have laws of logic because they're not made of matter and energy. They're conceptual. Somebody says, okay, they're, they're conceptual, but it's, they exist in human minds. Does that mean that contradictions were true before human beings existed? Oops, that's not going to work, right? How do you know they're universal? 
Every secularist believes that, that laws of logic work on the moon and the Andromeda galaxy, and yet no one's been to the Andromeda galaxy to check. How could they possibly know that on their own? Well, we assume that's true, yeah, and children assume there's a monster in the closet. Do you have a good reason for your belief? Oh, well, it's worked everywhere in my experience. Oh, how big is your experience compared to the universe? Oh, you've only, you haven't even left Earth? <laughs> Sheesh. And you're willing to extrapolate based on this little pale blue dot to the entire rest of the universe? That would be a hasty generalization fallacy. That's not reasonable. You say, how, do I, how do you know they're invariant? Well, they haven't changed in my lifetime. Well, again, your lifetime, pretty small. And, how, and, and by the way, none of us have experienced the future. So how do you know that, that, that laws of logic won't stop working tomorrow? He says, well, I, you know, I, I guess I don't know that, but I just assume that. Well, then again, you're like the child who believes there's a monster in the closet. You're acting on something that you have no evidence for. It's arbitrary and irrational. How do you know they're exceptionless? So I've never seen an exception. I've never seen Antarctica. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? You see, no human being has universal, invariant, exceptionless experience. And so no one could know on their own authority these aspects of laws of logic, everybody, but everybody does know them. And that's only possible in the Christian worldview where we have revelation from God. God's, God can know all those things because of who he is, his mind determines truth, and he has revealed something about his nature to us. So we can know something about God and the way he upholds his universe. Laws of logic are reflections of the way God thinks. And that's something that's pretty awesome too. So when you study logic, it's actually an aspect of theology. You're learning about how God thinks, and that's cool. That's pretty awesome to learn to think like your creator. Not that we can, again, not that we can think exactly like him. We're finite, he's infinite. But we can think in a way that's consistent with his nature. I already mentioned the law of non-contradiction based on 2 Timothy 2.13. That would be one verse that indicates that God does not deny himself. The Greek word there, it could, be, it could be translated contradict. He doesn't contradict himself. And in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, therefore all truth is in God, and God doesn't contradict himself, therefore truth will never contradict itself. There's a law of non-contradiction. It's going to work everywhere. It's going to work at all times because God is everywhere, and he doesn't change with time. So when unbelievers use laws of logic, they're stealing from the Christian worldview. They do. Uh, naturalism, the belief that nature is all that there is, everything that exists is matter and energy, and yet the naturalist tries to use logic to convince other people of, of his position, but logic is not made of matter and energy. And so in his worldview, it can't exist. That's a problem. See, unbelievers will steal from the Christian worldview. They'll stand on God's ground. They have to because they have to live in God's universe. They're not going to be honest about that. They're going to say, oh, no, laws of logic, that's not a biblical concept at all. Well, it is, because you can't account for those properties of laws of logic or their existence apart from the biblical God. And so we're going to point out that, look, fellow, you're standing on God's ground. You either need to get saved or stop trespassing, right? And we hope you'll get saved, but that's between you and God. So I'm not going to go through all these for time's sake, but I do have to point out that really every argument that's waged against Christianity will assume, to some extent, logic. But logic itself makes no sense apart from the Christian worldview. And see, if you really get that, you realize there cannot be a good argument against Christianity. Because anyone arguing against Christianity would have to stand on the Christian principles of laws of logic in order to make the argument. And so if he, even if he were successful, it's not going to work out well for him because he'd lose the ground on which he must stand to make the argument, right? 
So we do have a moral obligation to be rational. Rationality has many practical benefits. You're going to be less likely to be fooled. You're going to be more likely to have correct beliefs and more correct beliefs. And then rationality really is essential in apologetics. It's so helpful. It's better to know how to think than to know lots and lots of facts. I'm not against learning the evidence. I'm a scientist. I like to talk about evidence. I think it's interesting. But you can't know everything, so it's better to know how to think, to think biblically, to, th to uh, debate the way that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. That's powerful.